Welcome to Parenting Well Podcast with Parent Engagement Network. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, your host, and today you're listening to Parenting Well, where we know that parenting well is challenging and that all parents are the best parents they know how to be. We firmly believe that the foundation for raising healthy, happy youth is for us as parents to fill our own well with useful, reliable, credible information, tools, and strategies. Having this well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. So let's get started and fill that well. Today's well source is Dr. Travis Reeder. Dr. Reeder is a philosopher by training, bioethicist by profession, and communicator by passion. He is the Assistant Director for Education Initiatives, Director of the Master of Bioethics Degree Program, and Research Scholar at the Berman Institute of Bioethics. He is also a faculty affiliate at the Center for Public Health Advocacy within the Johns Hopkins School of Public Health. Dr. Reeder writes and speaks on a number of ethical and policy issues raised by both prescription and illicit opioid use, and is the author of the book, In Pain, A Bioethicist's Personal Struggle with Opioids. Thank you so much for being with us here today. Very happy to be here. Thank you for having me. So first, I just want to say I really enjoyed your book. Um, it provides such an incredible background on the history of opioid use, um, some of the issues we face when it comes to pain management, and really a lot about your own personal story and what we need to do to make sure that people are served well when they are in an encounter with the medical system. So in order to give our readers a little bit of a background, can you share your story? Sure, so in 2015, I was a pretty dedicated motorcycle rider and on Memorial Day weekend, I went out for um, a kind of celebratory ride, celebrating a new faculty position, and life was going very well. Uh, but I did not get very far. I got about three blocks from home, and uh, a young man in a big white van blew a stop sign and ran directly into the side of my motorcycle. So the result of that impact was my left foot was crushed. It was crushed between the van and the motorcycle. And uh, I sustained a lot of damage to my, my left foot. The result is that I was in what doctors called a limb salvage situation. And so the, the live question when I got to the trauma center was whether or not they were going to actually be able to save my foot. Very scary. <laughs> um, and you know, from, from reading your, your book, I, I learned that you ended up going through six surgeries over the, the course of a few months, correct? That's right. Yeah, the first five were limb salvage surgeries. So it took five surgeries to determine, you know, whether or not I'd be able to keep my foot. And so those all happened within about a month. So between May 23rd and June 15th. Um, and then after that, they had pulled together all the shattered bones. They had closed the very large wounds, uh, which was something of a medical miracle. I had lost so much tissue that they actually cut um, fat and muscle and skin and artery and nerve. They took all of this from my thigh and used it to plug the hole in my foot, which is pretty wild. Um, that was surgery number five, which was called a free flap. Um, so pretty big surgery. It lasted about nine hours. 
So those five were really big. Then I was sent home to recover uh, in lots of pain, having recovered from lots of surgery. And I wouldn't have my sixth surgery until several months later after the swelling had gone down, the shape of the foot had started to settle, and they could figure out kind of how much they needed to do to make my foot a little more foot shape, basically. Right. And um, you mentioned that this was really the first encounter with the system with such a major deal. Right. So, so I'd had, you know, kind of normal injuries. I played sports my whole life. I would broken lots of bones and, you know, I kind of had a passing familiarity with pain and injury, but I had never sustained a trauma, right? The sort of thing that happens when you're in a motorcycle accident or some car accident, or if you're in the military and sustain, you know, um, gunshot wound or something, the, the kind of thing that, that your body can't fully come back from. Um, that was totally new to me. Surgery was very new. The, the scale of the encounter, you know, how long I would be in hospitals, how long it would take me to recover. You know, I'm about four years out from the, the impact now, and I still am recovering to some degree you know there's still a lot of physical therapy and exercise therapy to you know get as much function from my foot as possible so all that was very new the idea that recovery might last months or years and that I would be in pain forever totally not on my radar before this right right and you know one of the things that I really enjoyed reading about was the way you talked about pain because I think that when we talk about the opioid epidemic uh, we don't always spend a lot of time looking at what puts us in the position to use opioids to begin with, and what do you do when you are using opioids for something where it's really quite necessary. So um, when we're looking at pain, I suspect most of the people here that are listening have been in a situation where, whether it's just a normal doctor's visit or they're going in for surgery, or they've experienced a trauma, have had someone ask them, you know, please rate your pain on a scale of one to 10. Um, and you talked about that in your book. What, what is it about pain that makes it so difficult for us to, to describe it? Well, you know, it's kind of funny being trained as a philosopher and going through this because um, I'm kind of primed to think about this because philosophers think a lot about, you know, you know, how do I access the world? You know, my senses are all very subjective. Um, so I talk to my students about these sorts of things. And then pain is inherently subjective. I mean, it's, it's really quite a, a wild phenomenon. So if you think about some pain that you've had in your life, so for me, I had pain in my foot. And so I feel like, oh, I have pain in my foot, kind of out there in the world. Um, you kind of think or wish or hope that it's the sort of thing that can be measured because it's out there and, you know, we can x-ray and see the bone, we can do MRIs to like, you know, shouldn't there be some way we can measure the pain? But all of that's a little bit wrong because pain is actually occurring in your brain, right? Pain is just the, the, the product of electrical signals. And that means that, you know, for some people, if they have their leg amputated, they might still feel pain in their leg, which doesn't actually make much sense because there's no leg to feel pain in. Um, and it's so all of this is, is in the service of uh, a pretty simple observation, which is that my pain is something that only I have access to. And I can talk about it to you, with you. I can tell my doctor about it. Um, but they really have to take it on, on some degree of trust and faith that what I'm saying is true. 
because there's no such thing as a painometer, right? Like we can't wave a magic wand and, and figure out exactly how much pain someone's in. So it's always going to be a kind of negotiation of trying to figure out what pain is like. So that pain scale you talk about, you rate your pain on a scale of zero to 10, where zero is no pain at all. And 10 is the worst pain you can imagine. That is a very simple tool that's trying to solve this phenomenally complex problem, which is that we can't actually talk about pain very well. So it's, it's a little bit weird. You know, I got, I got better at using it. Um, I kind of had an idea for me what the numbers meant, but it doesn't solve this problem because if I tell you that my pain was a seven, uh, you know, you might be thinking maybe rightly that you're just way tougher than me. And so you're like, yeah, it'd probably be a three for me. Right. And so you still can't know what it's like to be in a pain of seven for me. And that's, that's the central puzzle. That's, a, that's what pain medicine is designed to treat. And that's why it's so hard. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. And for you, you experienced a lot of pain and um, unbearable pain where you needed to have medication um, like oxycodone to, to help you get through this experience. So, you know, you shared that that led to eventually your dependence on oxycodone. And you talked about how there's a difference between being dependent and being addicted. And, you know, since we are an organization that serves parents and parents are often responsible for taking their children in and knowing how to talk to doctors and support their kids in being um, treated, what do they need to know about this difference between dependence and addiction? This is such an important question. Because, you know, I go around and I speak to, to groups of physicians and healthcare administrators and the public uh, all around the country. And the majority of people don't understand this distinction between dependence and addiction. And so, so think about it this way. Um, to say that you are physiologically dependent on a substance simply means that your brain has adapted to its presence. And so if you take that substance away, your brain reacts violently. Now, our bodies do this. Our brains and central nervous systems do this in the presence of lots of different substances. So it does, uh, they, they, they do it in response to opioids, but also benzodiazepines, also alcohol, and then ones that we don't think about as potential so-called drugs of abuse. So antidepressant medication, lots of other psych meds, uh, medications like SSRIs and SNRIs, which are treating anxiety and antidepression. These substances do cause dependence which means your brain becomes accustomed to them. And if you take the medication away, your brain reacts pretty violently, which can cause a lot of miserable symptoms. Um, but we don't typically think of anybody ever getting addicted to an SSRI or an antidepressant medication. And so then the really important question is, why not? You know, what's the difference between your brain developing a tolerance and dependence and then you going through withdrawal? So withdrawal is what we call the process of your brain kind of reacting violently to the medication or the substance being taken away. What happens in some people, a much, much smaller percentage, because everybody's brain becomes tolerant and dependent on substances that cause this. So everyone who takes opioids in high enough doses for a long enough period of time, their brain will become dependent on opioids. That's just the way brains work. They're very good at learning their environments and adapting. So then what happens to a much, much smaller percentage of the population is some people start to crave the drug, crave the medication. 
they start to have compulsive thoughts and desires and um, compulsive actions that feel almost out of their control. And sometimes those compulsive actions occur even in the face of negative consequences. So now we get what's called the three C's of addiction, your cravings, compulsions, and acting even in the face of negative consequences. So now we can think about our paradigm cases of addiction where people are really willing to kind of burn their lives down sometimes. They'll, they'll risk losing their jobs and losing their family, losing access to their kids, sometimes becoming homeless. These are terrible consequences that we think no rational person would choose. And oftentimes we know and love these people and we know that they value their family and they value their job and they choose against them anyway. And that's a sign that they've developed this health condition that goes beyond mere dependence. They've developed this health condition where they are, you know, losing control of their actions. And so this is a brain disorder where the reward centers and the motivation centers of the brain have become pathologically modified. So that was, a, that was a really long introduction, but the basic idea here is that there's a physiological response to drugs that it causes one sort of problem, which is you go into withdrawal. And then there's a bunch of behavioral sequelae, which can become attached to that, and that's addiction. Right. That makes a lot of sense, um, that it becomes addiction when it's actually harmful to your life and you can't stop yourself. Um, the distinction of the three C's, I think, is really helpful for parents to look at. You know, we've had, we talk about brain science quite a bit and how different drugs replicate neurotransmitters in your brain. And that's part of the process that your brain gets flooded with these neurotransmitters that they see, or with these fake copies of neurotransmitters. And then when they're not there, it wants more and more and more. And that, um, leads to when you take more and more and more, it leads to that level of tolerance. And tolerance, I think, is another thing that people don't always understand. Um, and I think it's one of the things that leads to young people, well, and, and adults, um, getting to a place where they're at risk for overdose. Um, and so that's one of the concerns our parents often face is, you know, of course, they're rightfully so. They're concerned that their kids are going to use drugs, try drugs, become dependent on them. Um, but then in the face of a child who's using, you know, the real fear is, is this going to take their life? Um, and, and we see that, especially when um, we understand tolerance, we can kind of see how that happens. Can you share a little bit about tolerance and what that process looks like? Absolutely. So tolerance is, I mean, it, it's really, as you say, it's really quite a scary phenomenon because not all properties of a drug cause tolerance to the same degree. And so let me unpack that. So I, I took opioids for, for a couple of months before I was told that I should get off them. And I was trying to medicate such severe, such extreme pain. And my doctors were so aggressive in treating that pain that they were giving me kind of the highest doses they could to take the edge off that pain. Well, here's the really perverse aspect of tolerance when it comes to opioids. Opioids do a bunch of things. So they cause uh, analgesia, pain relief. That's what I was using it for. They also, in doing so, they cause euphoria, which is why they can be abused and people can, can take them seeking a high. So I'm totally comfortable acknowledging that I, I experienced the euphoria and I liked it. I mean, it was, with a nice aspect of the drug. Um, but then there are other things that the drug does, and we think of them as side effects. So it sedates you. And one of the body systems that it sedates most aggressively is the respiratory system. 
So you begin to breathe uh, less and less. You take fewer breaths per minute. Your oxygen levels drop. And when somebody dies of an opioid overdose, the cause of death is lack of oxygen to the brain. They eventually stop breathing. So the respiratory sedation is the deadly component of drug use when it comes to opioid. The, the sick part about opioids, the kind of perverse joke of nature, is that we become tolerant to the euphoric and the analgesic effects way faster than we become tolerant to the respiratory depression. And what that means is if I'm medicating pain, I need more of the medication faster than my body becomes accustomed to the respiratory depression. So I increase my dose to chase the pain relief and my body isn't ready for it because the respiratory depression becomes more and more aggressive. That's where the risk of overdose really goes up because the same thing's true of euphoria. So in the medical context, you seek pain relief and your risk of respiratory depression goes up when you increase your dose. And in the illicit uh, context, if you're taking heroin or pills from the street, uh, you're chasing the euphoria. And just like with the analgesia, your therapeutic window is getting smaller and smaller because of that, pain, that um, tolerance. So you're taking more to get the same level of euphoria or trying to get the same level of euphoria, but your respiratory depression is going up every time you increase the dose. So that's the real danger of tolerance. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I found that very interesting. Um, on a personal note, I'm an avid cycler and mountain biker, and I had a, a pretty serious cycling accident a few years ago um, that left my left arm, um, the bones of my left arm broken and my wrist wasn't attached anymore. Um, I... and so, yeah, it was, it was awful and, and truly one of the worst experiences I've ever had. Um, I, did, I, I can share that I didn't know what pain felt like until I had that experience um, to the level of the pain I experienced. Um, But here's the thing that I found really interesting and I didn't understand it until I read your book. When I was in the hospital, they were switching different medications, you know, they'd give me morphine and then they'd couple that with Dilaudid. And Mm -hmm. every time they gave me Dilaudid, I would, my heart rate would slow so much that my husband would have to like touch me and make me breathe again. So um, I just found that really interesting and I found it even more interesting because it wasn't something that I had taken before or taken a lot of, but my body had a very extreme reaction to that, to the point where the doctors were like, we can't give this to her unless, you know, unless someone is sitting there making sure she breathes. So I kind of assumed from what you wrote about that that was what was going on in my body is my respiratory system just wasn't kicking in. That's exactly it. Yeah. So the the really scary realization, and, and, and I don't want to scare people too much, like we, we very often need these opioids. If you're in the hospital, you need them for severe pain relief. But, but the thing that is a kind of striking realization is that when your breathing is slowing in the hospital, and this is the reason they have you hooked up to the you know, oxygen monitor if you're on opioids, is because you are flirting with the same mechanism that causes overdose, right? your breathing is slowing in exactly the same way that your breathing slows if you take heroin out on the street. The drugs are doing the same thing. Heroin's not special, it's not magic and evil, it's just another opioid. It was created as a pharmaceutical too. And so, yeah, when you're slowing down your breathing, that's precisely because 
you're flirting with the respiratory depression mechanism that can, in fact, cause overdose. And typically, you're in the hospital, you're well monitored, they can wake you up, put you through breathing exercises, and they have naloxone on hand. So in the very worst circumstances, if they misjudged your dose, they can revive you with naloxone, which knocks the opioids out of your brain's receptors. But it is a little bit of a distressing realization to understand that's what's happening when your breathing slows. Right, right. Um, your mention of naloxone, I think that's another thing that's good for parents to know about and to understand. Um, and it is something that has now become more available um, at pharmacies and so forth. Can you describe what naloxone is and, and if that's something parents should have on hand? Absolutely. Naloxone is an overdose reversal drug. And it's, it's borderline magic. It does one thing, it does it incredibly well, it has no side effects. And so what naloxone does is it reverses an overdose in progress by taking up the site of the brain receptors that opioids would bind to. So if you've taken a potentially fatal dose of opioids, all these receptors in your brain and central nervous system have an opioid like oxycodone or heroin sitting in them and that's what's releasing the dopamine that's doing all of the things to your body systems, both the good like euphoria and pain relief and the bad like respiratory sedation. Mm -hmm. So the way to reverse that overdose is to knock the receptors free, get the opioids out of there. And so naloxone has really, really high affinity for something called the mu receptor uh, in your brain and interest central nervous system. It's got such high affinity that it'll knock the opioid free and so it's really quite magical to watch. Like you see somebody, they basically stop breathing or they're only taking a couple breaths per minute. It's an overdose in progress. You spray naloxone in their nose. So this is the form that most people, you know, most civilians can carry. It's very easy. It requires very little training. So you put it up the nose, you spray it like a nasal spray. It gets into their system very quickly. And within a minute or two, they rouse and they're awake and they're functional. So it's, it's uh, potentially life-saving. It's a very effective drug. I think not only should parents have it on hand, you know, if their children or someone else in their family are on high-dose opioids for medication or if they suspect that someone they know or love is using street drugs, it's also just good to have on hand because America is in the midst of a drug overdose crisis where opioids are playing a starring role. Fentanyl is in the drug supply in most places. And so it's just a good thing to have as a citizen because you never know when you'll be walking down the street and somebody yells out, hey, I think this person just overdosed. And if you're carrying naloxone, you can potentially save that person's life. So I absolutely encourage everyone to, to carry it. The Surgeon General uh, just issued a call earlier this year encouraging all citizens to have it on hand. I carry two uh, uh, naloxone with me, two sprays of naloxone with me everywhere I go. It's in my work bag. You can carry it on airplanes. It's approved by the, um, uh, oh gosh, what's the, the body that approves stuff on airplanes? Um, uh, TSA, something like this. Right, yes. right. Um, <laughs> it's approved yeah. to carry on airplanes. So when I travel to give talks, I always carry my naloxone with me. I've never used it. Lots of people I know who work in this space who carry naloxone have used it or given it away. Right, right. Yeah, and it's pretty easy. I think you can just get it from most pharmacies, right? I mean, I think it's not. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So something for people to consider. Um, you know, one of the tricky parts of the conversation around opioids is um, 
whether use is going to lead to addiction or, or dependence and what pa how parents can know and what they can do about it. Um, we've had several, we do an opioid event every year. We've had several young people share their stories with us. And, um, and all of these young people are people that are now in recovery. Some of them say, you know, that they, like, for example, had a, had a sport injury or had some reason that they went in for trauma and that they knew the second that they used it, that they'd never felt anything so amazing and they were hooked like immediately. Um, and so these are the kind of fears that I think parents sit with is, you know, how do I go into a situation with, with, a, with a doctor? What do I need to know and how do I advocate for myself and for my child? Uh, would you have any pointers for parents to, you know, this is a big question, but pointers for parents to know what kind of conversation should they be having with a doctor right away, um, not later on when there's potentially a dependence. Yeah, so, so let me just say a couple things and then you can steer me if you like. Okay. Um, so, so first thing to note is I don't want, and I think we really shouldn't be uh, having too much fear of opioids to the extent that it kind of swings the pendulum all the way the other direction. So we got really comfortable with opioids for a while and doctors gave them out like candy and that's part of what spurred today's epidemic. But I don't think the response to that is to be just terrified of them so that you don't ever let your child use these painkillers, even if they, uh, you know, have some very severe pain. So, so right off the bat, I just want to say like, let's try to be nuanced and careful and rigorous as we think about this. So that's, that's thing one. The thing too is children do have higher risk of developing addiction with exposure to various substances. And so, um, you know, a background risk rate is hard to establish even for the general population, but we think that, you know, somewhere between less than 1% and 10% of people who are exposed to opioids will actually develop an addiction or an opioid use disorder. And that's a big range. Uh, a lot of folks settle on something like five or six percent. It's a relatively small number of people who are exposed to opioids actually develop an addiction. Now, we talked about the difference between dependence and addiction. I think a lot more people end up developing a dependence that harms them in some way. So there are, there are lots of things to consider. But the background rate is, is actually fairly low. So if you or your child has a, an accident and is experiencing severe pain, you know, it's not the case that if they get a taste of Vicodin, they're then you know, obviously going to become addicted. But children have developing brains. You know, this is something that you probably know better than I do, folks that you work with. You know, developmental psychologists have talked about this for a long time. So you know, uh, teenagers, for instance, their frontal lobes are not fully developed yet. They aren't fully you know, uh, able to kind of do executive decision making. And so there's a heightened risk when somebody who hasn't fully matured yet experiences the effects of these drugs. And so that doesn't mean that we should never let kids have um, powerful pain relief, but it means that the risk benefit is different for a teenager than it is for a 35 year old. So that's another thing to keep in mind. The last thing I'll say is there are easier cases and there are hard cases. One of the easiest cases is that children all over America for a couple of decades have gone in for routine wisdom teeth extraction and been given a bottle of Percocet or a bottle of Vicodin. 
I think it's safe to say that nobody who's an expert in this field uh, believes that that was appropriate. And so even though the, um, the various bodies, the CDC, uh, the ADA, the American Dental Association, have all said, you know, that's a bad use of opioids. That's an exposure point we can avoid. There's still a lot of dentists and oral surgeons offering those bottles of painkillers. That's the case where I think we should feel really comfortable turning them down and advocating for your child saying, you know what, the evidence says ibuprofen and Tylenol work just fine. I don't need that in my house. So there's a couple things, and I'll let you steer me if you want to hear more about any of that. Yeah, yeah. I, I remember reading about that um, in your book and your experience going to the dentist after all of this happened to you. And I think that the, the, the use of ibuprofen um, and alternating that, that the two medications, um, I think that's a really helpful tool for parents that those two medications together can help someone get through this experience that much better. Um, and I also remember reading about just the limits of how many and how long you should use an opioid um, that, that oftentimes we've received way too many pills and we only need to be on this particular pain relief for a couple of weeks. Um, and you get pills that would last a full month. So, you know, those kind of things, I think, are the things that parents can just have in their back pocket when they're in that situation. Yeah, I mean, part of why I wrote my book is to make very accessible to the public the sorts of lessons that I think right now are really only had by experts. You know, so I go around to conferences and I work with people generating the evidence base for, you know, how many pills do we need for what sorts of procedures and pains. And the people in my world are now getting a handle on this. You know, for laparoscopic surgeries, you typically do need a few pills, but not very many. For knee and, and hip replacement, which is obviously more common in older people, these are really quite painful procedures, and knee pain, knees hurt a little bit more than hips, and so you need you know, maybe a, a two- to three-week supply of opioids for those. Right? We're getting a handle on this, but I think it's harder for most lay people to get access to this information. And so that was part of my goal in writing this book is, you know, um, any parent who wants to know, like, do we really need opioids for, you know, the, the kind of routine broken foot bone from playing soccer or even um, a hairline fracture in the wrist from wrestling or whatever? You know, I'm sure I'm thinking of my own childhood, the bones that right. I broke. Right. Um, and, and the answer is probably no. And if you do need pills or if you think, oh, I'm going to be overly protective and take some just in case, you almost certainly don't need more than a few. So it's very rare for doctors to give a prescription for, say, five Percocet. That's just such a low number. They, they hardly ever do it. But that's probably the appropriate prescription for some things like minor broken bones. Like give five pills, give eight pills. And if the, the child needs any of them, They've got a few, but they probably won't. Ibuprofen and Tylenol will probably work. And if they do, it'll probably just be a couple the first day, one or two the second day, and that's it. Right, right. And, you know, to me, this sounds a lot like most things in parenting, which is, you know, we need to pay attention to how our child is doing. Um, you know, I, I believe parents often know their kids better than anyone else, better than a doctor that's met with them a few times. So paying attention mm -hmm. and, and really being aware of what their needs are, maybe even using the, the zero to 10 pain scale, <laughs> you know, to try and understand where they're at, but, but just having an eye on them and, and knowing that you don't necessarily need to have them for that long. Yeah. yeah. 
Um, you know, you talked about the difference between being in a traumatic situation versus surgical pain versus long-term use and, um, and that sometimes that long-term pain that you have does require use over a period of time. And, and we do have this kind of stigmatizing, um, there's a stigmatizing effect to that. And those people sometimes suffer in getting the, the, the kind of treatment that they need. Um, can you share a little bit about that? Absolutely. So part of what I'm really concerned with, you know, I mentioned the swinging pendulum of attitudes about opioids. I'm really worried about society becoming so opioid phobic, right, that we start denying access to patients who need them. And this can go in a couple of different ways. One way is a little bit simpler. It's that um, we just stop prescribing for any initial situation. If somebody comes out of surgery and they just don't get any opioids, and maybe for some surgeries that's okay, and for some that starts to make us feel really bad because the person is just going to writhe in pain for three or five days. So that's one thing that I'm concerned about, that, you know, there's certain kind of pain that I think we really ought to medicate, even with these powerful, risky medications, because it's within a patient's uh, ability to weigh those costs and benefits and say, yes, three or five days of pain relief is worth the risk to me. But let's set that aside because there's this other thing that happens, which is we've been prescribing opioids aggressively since the mid-1990s. And we've been doing it not just for acute pain like surgery and trauma. We've been doing it for chronic pain, which was probably not a great idea. Some of these patients maybe eventually would have needed opioids, but we did it as what's called first-line treatment. Somebody comes in with chronic, unexplained, low back pain, joint pain, gut pain, and uh, because they were convinced it was safe and effective, doctors just wrote prescriptions for opioids. We'll now go back to our phenomena of tolerance and dependence. Well, the effect of the opioids would, would diminish, and so they would need increasing doses. The result of this history is that we have a population of patients now, and call them legacy patients, who are a legacy of this past prescribing. And so they are often on very high doses of opioids because over the years they became tolerant and needed more and more. And so, you know, the average opioid dose for someone who's opioid naive, you know, getting you know, treated for moderate to severe pain, if you think that's like five to 10, maybe 15 morphine equivalent milligrams, you know, some of these people are on 200, 500, 1,000 milligrams of morphine equivalents per day. And that dose is so high that if we thought, you know, hey, they probably need to get off of this, the road to getting off of that medication would be long. It could be just totally fraught with miserable withdrawal symptoms. And a lot of these patients are terrified. They're scared of being told they can't have these medications anymore. And more and more often, they are being denied these medications because doctors are now scared of prescribing them. So not only do we have the case of I'm worried about just undertreating pain when it happens, I'm really worried about doctors abandoning patients who already have the dependence. And that means that we could be sending a lot of patients into just massive suffering from withdrawal. Uh, if some of them do have an underlying opioid use disorder, if you take away their supply, they might try to get it from the black market. And the black market is not nearly as safe as regulated pharmaceuticals because heroin is laced with fentanyl. So, all of this is just very distressing, and we are accumulating evidence slowly, largely anecdotally, 
we're accumulating evidence that these patients are being abandoned at just far too high a rate. Um, and so the, the CDC and even the FDA has come out saying, you know, doctors, cool your jets, don't abandon these patients. But it's not clear that that's really helped anything. Right. You know, and that was a, another big part of your book was talking about, um, I, I was actually really struck by the statement that doctors have a moral obligation to both manage pain and reduce harm. Um, and that not doing so is like causing an accident and then leaving the scene. Um, and, and I know for you, you felt somewhat abandoned because you had been prescribed quite a bit and you had become dependent and then nobody was really there to help you come off of those opioids when it was time to do that. So what are your thoughts in terms of where we need to go? Well, so, I mean, I really took myself to be a kind of um, introductory case study, right? Because as you say, I was prescribed opioids for a couple of months. I did get very high doses very quickly. And when I felt abandoned, when my doctors basically could not give me any good advice, some of them would not you know, work with me, I couldn't find anyone in the medical establishment. And I'm on the East Coast in big cities at world-class hospitals you know, that stitched my foot back together with magic, as far as I could tell. And I had access to all of this great care and nobody would help me. And the result was that I went through a month of just horrible, miserable withdrawal which, which I describe in the book because I want people to understand how bad that is. But now let's pan out. I'd only been prescribed opioids for a couple of months. And so, yeah, if it was like, you know, my doctors caused an accident and left the scene because they prescribed these medications that they wouldn't manage or taper. Well, now if you think about these, these legacy patients, you know, they've been prescribed for, for years and sometimes decades. And when they're abandoned, it's just catastrophic. So exactly, you know, your question, what do we do? Well, the, the kind of easy way to think about it would be to say, look, clinicians, you know, doctors, RNs, PAs, anyone with a DEA license to prescribe opioids, if you are going to use these substances, which have appropriate uses, but they carry these risks, they cause tolerance and dependence and sometimes addiction, well, then you have to know enough about them that you can help manage a patient if they run into any of these problems. And I think that actually is like a pretty good summary of the way we should think about responsibility for a lot of clinicians. You know, the family doctors who see patients over a long term, who prescribe a lot of opioids because their patients come in in pain. If you're gonna prescribe opioids and if it's appropriate, you're on the hook for that sort of management. But there are lots of more complicated situations, right? Surgery is really complex. Your surgeon is not the person that you're going to spend a lot of time with, right? And a lot of times, if you're prescribed opioids after a surgery, your surgeon's name is not even on that prescription. They were prescribed by a PA or an RN who does the discharge paperwork. So, uh, or, or um, a nurse practitioner, rather, who, who does the discharge paperwork. Right. So, we have to think about this at a pretty high level. Like, how do we organize healthcare so that people don't get abandoned and don't fall through the cracks? And it's a really hard question, and I can't probably give a single answer because the clinic that you go to in your hometown probably has a different reasonable answer than some major outpatient surgical center. And so all of the institutions working within our healthcare system, if they want to be responsible users of opioids, they've got to face this question. You're not allowed to abandon your patients. 
you're on the hook for management and long-term uh, exit strategy, development, and tapering. How are you going to do it? And then it is incumbent upon every institution and clinician to have an answer to that question. Right. And what I'm hearing is, as a parent, one of the things that could be empowering is walking into that situation knowing that, knowing that it's important to pay attention to all the different people who have access to your child and asking for what is this plan? What is the plan for my child's uh, treatment of pain and how are we gonna support my child throughout the whole process? Absolutely, and, and you know, sometimes we're caught by surprise. I did not plan on having my foot blown apart. You know, I did not plan on landing in the trauma center. So I did not think ahead. Um, but sometimes your kid is gonna be, you know, scheduled for a surgery is going to have something that you can prepare for. And my advice is you don't let doctors start working until they can tell you how they're going to finish working, right? And so if, if the procedure involves prescribing you a bottle of Percocet or Oxycodone or morphine, right, uh, in the procedure, if that's going to be part of their pain management strategy, then you are entitled to know up front how long are they going to need it, how likely is it that it's going to cause them problems with tolerance or dependence, what's the risk of addiction, do they have the handoffs ready, can they recommend a pain management doctor if, if you need more complex uh, handling of the situation. All of that is totally fair to ask for, to demand ahead of time. Those are great questions. You know, one of our, um, we have a couple core values that have really come up in this conversation. One is taking the fear, shame, guilt out of parenting because it's already challenging enough, right? And so living in this space of fear that your child is going to be addicted to opioids isn't going to make you feel empowered to handle a situation um, that makes you afraid and kind of, and sometimes shut down. Um, but also, you know, being an empowered parent for us is having the resources and the education, the tools to know what to ask. And just like you said, um, when you were talking about where you live, that you are around a lot of people, you feel very resourced. I think it's very common as a parent to, you only know what you know, and sometimes you don't feel very resourced. So I, I, I really appreciate a lot of the kind of very specific things that you've shared that parents can just know and have on hand when they're in this situation because it starts with just understanding and having some tools. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, one of the things that I like to ask people that I talk to is, what do you think it is that young people crave or need from adults? And, and I ask that because, you know, we're really invested in in building up the protective factors in, in our kids' lives and reducing risk. Um, and we know that, that parents and supportive adults is one of the biggest protective factors. So, you know, how would you answer that question? What do you think it is that young people need from their adults? How can they show up for them? Oh, such a good and hard question. And, and, <laughs> and you know, I'm, I'm no expert on parenting. Um, but uh, I had a one and a half year old when I had my accident. And one of the hardest things in my life was to go through the process of recovering from trauma and then recovering from opioid dependence and withdrawal, watching my one and a half year old and just desperately wanting to be there for her um, and not being able to. And 
there is this very understandable, interesting phenomenon that I observed in the aftermath of all of this, which is that we had one of our most challenging time periods with my daughter uh, in the wake of all of this. You know, she was in the midst of, of a hard, chaotic household where dad was very broken and, and mom was having to do everything and for everyone. And, uh, and I thought a lot, well, and, and so, you know, taking the guilt and shame out of parenting, boy, good for you all. Cause <laughs> isn't that just kind of overwhelming, right? So I was yeah. filled with a lot of guilt after all of this because I saw her acting out in the wake of it and thought, you know, that's on me. That's what I did. Um, but I'm, I'm not about, I, you know, I try to, to get over that because we did what we had to do and, and we survived. But what it did make really live for me was how much value there was in stability for my daughter. And so, you know, as I got better and as I recovered, that was one of the things that we worked hardest at kind of regaining in our household that, um, you know, she she needed her dad. And as I can, you know, was able to become more present that was something we worked on and she needed a household where things weren't constantly just chaos. And that was one of the things we tried to do. Uh, and so I do, I try to never be overly guilty or to let anyone shame me about the fact that we had to survive that period uh, because sometimes you do, but I, I will remember for the rest of my life, the value of stability and of having some calmness, and, you know, some family time that isn't just chaos and recovery. Uh, so there you go. That's, that's the piece mm. that I think that I might be able yeah. to speak to. That's great. Yeah. You know, I think uh, part of what I heard and what you shared is that, that by providing that stability, young people really want to know what to expect from you. And they start to learn what mm -hmm. they can expect. And, um, and being able to get through what you guys had to go through is one of the foundations of building resiliency because like you said it's life is life has challenges and and to think that we're never going to face those challenges and that our kids are never going to have to get through something is unrealistic and so supporting them in doing that and helping them to recover past those challenges you know the whole bend not break phenomenon of resiliency is is really important so thanks for sharing that um absolutely is there anything you know, before we close our conversation that you want to leave parents with today? You know, um, so it could be, I guess, another answer to this, this question of, of, you know, what you can provide kids with. But um, I think one of the most interesting things that I learned in researching my book and kind of taking my personal experience with pain and opioids and then turning it into a research program, I learned a lot about how to think about pain and the ways that the Americans think about pain versus other, some other cultures in the world, um, the requirements we have, the kind of expectation that life will be pain-free, and uh, the sense that we have a right to very aggressive pain treatment. You know, there's there's some really interesting, oh, uh, cultural norms about pain in the U.S. that I don't think have served us very well. And so another thing that I spend a lot of time doing with my daughter is just trying to expand the things that I try to teach myself, um, thinking about living with pain and, um, 
trying to stay emotionally calm in the face of pain. So my daughter is five now and, you know, five-year-olds hurt a lot. They, <laughs> they kick things every day. They fall down every day. They, they're covered in scrapes and bruises. And so there's a lot of pain in my, in my five-year-old's life. Right. Uh, hopefully most of it's pretty minor. And so we do a lot of time sitting and breathing, right? Mm-hmm. You know, yes, this hurts, but it's not the end of the world. Yes, this hurts. We all have these hurts, but you can breathe through it. You can think about something else. You can distract yourself. And this sounds so common sense. And it's the sort of thing that I imagine parents largely do instinctively. But these are genuine pain therapy lessons. You know, when you become an adult and you need real professional pain help, you call this um, breathing exercise and meditation. You call it mindfulness. You call it, you know, adopting yoga and Tai Chi as a lifestyle solution to pain or even going to cognitive behavioral therapy, learning some talk strategies for, you know, rewiring your brain. This isn't new agey, hokey, hippie stuff. Like this is evidence-based pain therapy. And I've started to believe that we can do better as a culture starting our kids with this. And, uh, you know, hopefully my daughter doesn't feel like she's in a living experiment. (laughs) But, But yeah, you know, she will grow up with a dad who out loud says when either one of us is hurting, you know, let's work on our breathing. Let's calm down. Let's think about other things. Let's talk through our emotions, you know, um, focus on good things that are happening right now instead of catastrophizing about how much we hurt. Uh, and, and I think it can really help if we shift our attitudes a bit. Yeah, that's great. I love it. And, um, and I think that no matter what, our kids end up being living experience experiments. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard not to, right? I mean, because you yeah. every every experience as a parent is different. Even when you have more than one child, it's like, whoo, boy, the first one and the second one are not the same. Um, so thank you for that. Thanks, thanks for all the things you've shared. And I think that you know, your ability to take what happened to you and put it into words that can be. Um, used and and benefit people i think it's just a really great way for you to to provide a service to the communities that we live in um so it's been a real pleasure having you on our show and um you know i think you push people to be better and to see a system that works and you know i'm honored that you've shared your experience and all of your expertise with us today um if there's any way for our audience to reach you is there something is there a place they can reach you Absolutely. Well, I really appreciate all those comments. Thank you for that. And yes, I'm, I'm easy to find online. My website is travisreader.com. I keep it pretty updated with, um, you know, speaking engagements, uh, media, stuff that I do for the media, writing and, and videos. Um, yeah, so anybody, and, and I don't hide my contact information either. I know some authors do, um, but my email is right on my website and, uh, and I do my absolute best to respond to people when they reach out. That's great. And of course, they can pick up your book, In Pain, A Bioethicist Personal Struggle with Opioids. We want to thank Radio 1190 for letting us use their space. If you like what you heard today and want to become a sponsor or make a donation, you can find us at penbv.org. That's P-E-N-B-V dot We hope today's conversation has added to your parenting well. Having a well of resources leaves us more engaged, educated, and empowered to support our children in being strong, resourceful, confident, and resilient in the face of life's many challenges and adventures. I'm Dr. Shelley Mann, and you've been listening to Parenting Well Podcast. Until next time, happy parenting.